Father, that is our prayer tonight, that you would glorify your name through our lives, through every thought, every deed. We pray now that you would glorify your name through the preaching of your word, that your spirit would work through humble hearts, encourage the saints, and build us up so that we might arrive at that great goal that you have for us, our maturity in Christ. And we pray it all in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, it is a, uh, a joy to be back together this evening uh, in our study on maturity. We're calling it Growing Up, obviously. Uh, over the last few weeks, if you've been here, you know that. And it's not just a title for our series in college ministry. Um, that was supposed to be a joke, but uh, nobody laughed. That's okay. Just getting started. It's a series for all of us, obviously. Uh, It's a series about us progressing from our spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, spiritual adulthood. And we've seen that this is God's goal for His church. It's the reason that He saved us. It's the reason He gifted us. It's the reason He put us right here at TBC, gathered us together even tonight, so that we might grow up into Christ, grow up in every way into Him, says Paul, who is the head into Christ, Ephesians 4.15. That's the goal. And we've said that we're not talking about perfection when we talk about maturity. Perfection is the ultimate goal, yeah. But that's only coming in the resurrection. For now, we're shooting for maturity, what we're calling maturity. For spiritual stability, we might say. For a life that is consistently like Christ. Consistent in our thinking. Consistent in our desiring, that we desire what He desires. Consistent in our acting, that we act like Him in the world. And that's just the essence of maturity. It's consistent, not perfect, but consistent Christ-likeness. That's what we're after, and it's God's great goal for our lives. It's what He's after. And we've seen that in the last few weeks. We've seen how committed he is to that goal, haven't we? He's committed to making it a reality in our lives. He's committed to conforming us to the image of his son. He is the one, God Almighty is the one that's ultimately behind our growth, and we praise him for that. He's underwriting our maturity. He's guaranteeing our maturity. He's empowering our growth. Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that God began the work in us and he will certainly bring it to completion. He's going to finish it. He started it and he's going to bring it to, bring it to an end. And he says over in Philippians 2.13 that God is powerfully working in us right now. And that's why we strive. Because we know that God's working in us. And over the last two weeks, we fleshed out a little more exactly how God is powerfully working within us. That side of the equation, right? We looked at really four specific provisions that he's given to us for our growth. Remember what they were? Number one, the Spirit. That's right. He's given us the Holy Spirit. God himself is residing in us. He's taken up residence within us. He overcame our spiritual deadness with new life. And he also overcame our deception with truth. That's right. Truth. That was the second provision we looked at. 
Now that we have a new capacity, the Spirit is helping us come to understand what is true. What is true? What is real? And that comes to us through the Scriptures. But where is this truth proclaimed and modeled? Number three. Happens in the church. Right. God has designed the church as the central place that this transformation happens. It's not the only place, but it's the central place, and it moves out from there. And last week, we saw that it doesn't stop with the church. It continues on in the world, right? Number four. The fourth provision. God continues to mature us even in the world, and especially in the midst of our suffering, through our suffering. So we could... Suffice it to say that God is working everything out for our good, Romans 8.28, which is our conformity to the image of His Son. And that is massively encouraging that God is behind this process. But tonight we're going to turn, turn the corner in our series, and we're going to look at, uh, or maybe we should say revisit, a question that we asked several weeks ago. The question goes like this, if, if God is behind all my growth, if God's empowering my maturity, what's my role in this process, right? What part do I play in my own growth, in my own maturation? See, not play a part, but what is that part? If you remember back to Philippians 2.12, we saw there that we do play a role. In fact, Paul commands us to exert effort. And it's the reality that God is at work in us, is that's what, that's what motivates the effort. Look, again, just revisiting a familiar text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's the command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, the reason, it's God who's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, we can say that God strengthens us to strive for growth. Which means he empowers us so that we can exert effort. He empowers us so that we can pursue growth ourselves. And tonight we're going to begin to explore what this pursuit of maturity looks like. Or to use Paul's words from Philippians 2, what is involved in the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. If we should be striving, what are we striving for in particular? What's our role in this process? And just at the outset, let me just say there's some some really good news, okay? The the good news is it's not super complex. The answer isn't that complicated. It's difficult, but it's not complicated. If you boil it all down to the bottom you could argue that our responsibility in this process is the exercise of faith. It's the exercise of faith. That's the simplest way we could say it. What, at, the, at the bottom of this process, what are, what are we after? It's the exercise of faith. It's what Paul says that summarizes his own Christian life over in Galatians 2.20, another familiar text. But just listen to the centrality of faith in the Christian life. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
The life I now live in the flesh, I can summarize it by saying I live by faith in the Son of God. A life of faith is a life that is learning to trust Jesus more and more. It's learning to depend on His words. It's learning to rely on what He has said. It's learning to believe His promises. It's learning to heed His warnings. It's learning to follow His instructions. He's rescued us. Like Paul says, we've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's rescued us. And now he calls us to follow him. And that is a life of faith. So, very straightforward. Uh, not complicated. And yet, this is surprisingly difficult, isn't it? Why is that? Because even though we're new creatures in Christ, even though we're alive, this, we've been given the Spirit, we have a new capacity for truth, guess what else is there? Your old sinful nature is still very deceived and is still very influential in your life. It's not your identity anymore. That doesn't mean he or she doesn't still seek to influence you. That old nature of yours is still talking. That old nature of yours is still making assessments. That old nature is still churning up all kinds of desires in your heart still throwing massive propaganda at you all the time. And especially so, the less mature you are. And so what that means, a life of faith is a life of depending on what Jesus says over what you think. Over what seems best to you in the moment over what you might really crave, what you might desire, over what you might even feel. That's the challenge. And that's a life of faith. Whereas Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. So, you can think of your responsibility in the Christian life as a responsibility to learn to really trust Jesus' words above everything else. And you know where that starts? The starting point? For the Christian? You know where faith must kick in in our battle out of immaturity and toward maturity? This fight of faith starts as we learn to respond in faith to our sin. As we learn to respond in faith when we sin. As we learn to respond rightly, to respond biblically after we have sinned. Now, I realize that the goal of a series on maturity is to equip you to not sin, right? So why are we talking about this? Well, we've got to be realistic. Especially the less mature we are. So if you want a connection between immaturity and sin, uh, and the presence of sin... You can write down 1 Corinthians 3, uh, where Paul talks about, describes the, the infant in Christ as one that's characterized by the flesh more than by the Spirit. So, we're going to sin in the future. 
and especially so if you're on the less mature side of the spectrum. And you know what is also a reality? Do you know when you are most vulnerable for an onslaught of more lies and more sin? Any guesses? It's right after you've sinned. You're, you're facing an onslaught against your faith. For, you're facing a downward spiral into more and more sinning immediately after you have sinned. Just think about that. You parents, what does your four-year-old do when she's just sinned by hitting her sibling? Brother runs up crying. Oh, she hit me. And you say, did you hit your brother? Well, no, I didn't hit him. My hand just raised itself up and came down on his head, you know? What just happened? She sinned again. She just lied. Sin begets sin. And we're never more vulnerable than after we've sinned. And that's not just a four-year-old problem. We're all very tempted to respond wrongly to our sin and to keep compounding the problem, aren't we? When I'm in counseling and I'm, I'm discipling folks, I like to tell people, tell myself, look, you've already sinned once. Don't keep sinning. Don't keep compounding the problem. Adam and Eve are, are, are the obvious case in point here. They sinned by eating the fruit, but then they kept on sinning. What'd they do? They hid from God. It's not good. They tried their own solutions, too, with the fig leaves. Not good. They blamed others for their sin. Not good. That's the downward spiral, the spiral that we've all been in, the spiral that maybe some of you are in right now. And that's an extreme danger. And it happens immediately after we sin. But the good news is, the glorious news is that our God has provided a way out of this bear trap. A way out of this downward spiral. A merciful way out. He's told us very clearly how we should respond when we sin. And this is the first and most foundational step we can take toward maturity. Okay? So tonight, we're going to look at fighting by faith to respond rightly to your sin. You're going to notice from here on out, all of my headings are going to have fighting by faith in it. Because that's what this is. It's a fight to trust Jesus. And it starts with fighting by faith to respond rightly to your sin. In weeks to come, we're going to talk more about this fight of faith. But it all builds on what we're going to talk about tonight. So in the, in the time we have left this evening, I want us to look at what I'm calling four initial ways to respond biblically to your sin. Four initial ways, meaning this is a start. Four initial ways that we can respond biblically to our sin. That we can respond rightly to it. The way that Christ would want us to respond when we sin. Now, full disclosure, this is more like eight ways because they're, it comes with a negative and a positive in each one. Okay? It's my two for one. Uh, so, I don't know why I said that, but you'll get the point. 
All right. Also, as we're wading in here, for those of you who are on the more mature end of this spectrum, these, what we're going to talk about tonight also would serve as a helpful benchmark for your disciples, people that you're investing in, things that you want to see developing in their lives, obviously in your own life, but also in the lives of those you're discipling. So we'll come back to that at the end, but just telling you that up front. All right, the first way that the Lord, I would say, wants us to respond biblically to our sin is that we should not despair but have hope. So if you find yourself in sin, don't despair but have hope. Now again, to save us from turning all over the Bible, I'm just going to get a lot of mileage out of text we've already looked at. But as we, as we wade in here, I, it's, just, it's so easy to get stuck in the pit of despair after we've sinned, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about. If you feel trapped in a pattern of sin, man, despair is like on your doorstep. Now, I'm not talking about mourning over our sin or being broken over our sin or even being in anguish or feeling guilt over our sin. These are all good responses. Those are right responses. Even guilt is a good response. But despair, that's one step further. Despair is what unbelief feels. Despair evidences that we've fallen prey to a lie. Despair says there's no hope. That's a lie. Despair says I'll never change and I'm forced to live like this the rest of my life, which is another lie. Despair says, God must not love me if I sin like this. Again, a lie. If you're a believer, these these despairing thoughts could not be further from the truth. No matter how entangled you are in sin, God has committed himself to you in your sin. Like we saw several weeks ago, he has implanted his spirit within you, and his spirit never leaves a job unfinished. Philippians 1.6, he who began the good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will not leave his renovation half finished. He will bring it to completion. The fact that he saved you is the evidence that he's going to bring it to completion. He's begun the work so we can be sure that he will finish it. So, instead of despair, we should have hope at all times. Even after we've sinned. Now again, not giving you an excuse to sin. But we should have hope even after we've sinned. Hope fixes itself to what is true despite what we may feel. So here's what, it, here's what it would sound like. Here's what hope would sound like in a moment where we're tempted to despair over our sin. Even if you have no idea how to get out of it. You're in the sin. It's happened. Here's what a hopeful response would sound like. Father, I've sinned again. I have no idea how to make progress in this area, and I'm really discouraged. But your word says that you are going to finish the work you started in me. 
It says you're faithful. It says you will not leave it half done. You will sustain me to the end and present me guiltless before you. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. I'm not sure how to go about it. I need help, but I trust you to do it because it's what you've promised. That's a prayer of hope after you've sinned. There's a lot more that we could say about fighting despair, about fighting depression. Maybe we'll weave that in at some points in, in future, future lessons here. But out of the gate, I want you to be aware that after you've sinned, you will be tempted toward the lies of despair. Fighting by faith starts right here. And if that's you, if you're tempted to despair right now, you have to hang on to a text like Philippians 1.6 where God promises that he's going to finish the work that he started in you. Now, this is crucial, very important, we have hope. But it's not the only thing the Lord wants us to do. There's another initial response, and we can say it like this, don't isolate, but seek help. Don't isolate, but seek help. When we're trapped in sin, the last thing we feel like doing is bringing it into the light. Lots of reasons. We think we can manage it ourselves, even though what we've been trying in our own wisdom is clearly not working. We often struggle with what others are going to think of us. You know, pastor going to judge me if I bring this out? Let mentor think I'm immature? They think I'm an unbeliever? We fear the shame of admitting to someone else that we're ensnared. It's humbling. We should be further along. In our deception, we want to hide like Adam and Eve did. But when we do that, we cut ourselves off from the church, and that's one of the very means that God has designed to help us. So instead of isolating, the Lord wants us to seek help when we are ensnared. And again, trying to get mileage. We've looked at this text a number of times. Galatians 6.1. Paul calls on the spiritual people in the church to restore those caught in any transgression. Paul knows that Christians can be overtaken by sin patterns to the point that they are ensnared. We've said their foot's snagged in that bear trap in the woods. They don't know how to get out. The harder they try to get out, the more they're pulling on it, the deeper those, those, that trap sinks into their, their leg. They need help. And so what Paul does is he calls on the spiritual to come help them. To restore them, he says. Which means get them back in the game. Make them useful again. Get the trap off their legs so they can walk. So if, if that's what God has set up then, if you're the one who's ensnared, this text says you should seek out help, or it implies that you should seek out help from someone who is spiritual. That means you need to find someone in the church whose life is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that's the idea of spiritual, and ask them to help you. And a great path for this is through your Sunday school class. 
That's where this close-range shepherding happens, is what, how, we've, how we've set it up here. So go to that class leader or the leadership team, ask somebody in there for help. They'll be able to help you, or they'll be able to guide you to the person that's best suited to help you. And don't think things like, well, Pastor Brody's just too busy. Talk to me. Or Pastor Rich is just, he's going to just think I'm super needy. Or Pastor Don, I don't want to bother him. Listen, if you have a need, let a shepherd fulfill their role and actually shepherd you. That's the equipping ministry of Ephesians 4. And if you don't have a shepherd here at Timberlake for whatever reason, reach out to the office, set up an appointment with our counseling office. We have a, we're blessed to have a counseling office right here in the church. We've got folks who would love to sit down with you and, and help you navigate out of that bear trap. But however you make it known, even if it's just to the person sitting next to you after the service, like make it known. Satan wants you to stay isolated. To pretend that everything's all right. Why does he want that? So that you'll stay powerless in the Christian life. You'll be ineffective. You'll stay a broken arm in the body. Dead weight. And so that you'll stay under the crushing burden of a guilty conscience. But Christ has a far, far better way. So let's talk a little bit more about that better way. Here's a third way he wants us to respond to our sin. Again, negative and positive. Don't deny your sin, but confess it. Don't deny your sin. Don't cover it. Don't say you have no sin, like 1 John says. But confess it. Bring it out in the open. Own it. And you might be wondering, hang on, Clay. Isn't that just the same thing you just said, right? Like you say, go to a spiritual person. Isn't that confession of sin? That might be. They're definitely related. But get this. Just because you tell someone you have a problem, that doesn't necessarily mean you've confessed your sin. Not biblically speaking. It doesn't necessarily mean you've really owned your sin and taken full responsibility for it. That's confession. You might recognize you have a problem, and so you might go to somebody because you're in pain, but you might still be covering or concealing your sin in a way. So here in 1 John, he describes it as saying we have no sin. So we're going to be in 1 John for the rest of our time. So if you would turn over to 1 John. Chapter 1. 1 John 1. We'll start in verse 8. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So what John is doing here is he's encouraging us to not deny our sin. Or as he says here, 
saying we have no sin or saying that we've not sinned. <clears throat> he repeats the idea in two different ways, but same underlying idea. It's this form of denial, or as Proverbs 28.13 and Psalm 32 say, concealing, covering sin, staying silent about it, Psalm 32. But you might say, I don't deny my sin. I can freely admit that I'm a sinner. We do all admit that we're sinners, yeah, but there's a whole lot of subtle ways that you and I are tempted and often do deny our sin. So let's think through a couple of these together. What are some of these subtle ways that we're tempted to say we have no sin? Well, one way we do this, pretty common way, is we ignore our sin. We ignore our sin. That just means we pretend that nothing's wrong and something's actually wrong. We pretend nothing's wrong before the Lord, so we don't acknowledge it to Him. We pretend nothing's wrong in the church before other people. Say, so, well, how do, how do we do this? Well, you blow up at your wife, and then the next day you pretend that nothing happened. That's denying your sin by ignoring. You look at pornography and then you just get off the site, close the computer, exit the app, go about your day, pretending that nothing happened. That's ignoring your sin. And that's denying it. How about saying you're fine when you're really not? It's another way of ignoring we do this, sadly, a lot. But if, let's say we're not ignoring our sin, we might do other things. We might minimize our sin. We might downplay it. So minimizing, we're willing to acknowledge that we have a problem. But we downplay the sinfulness of the problem. So I know that should be lusting, but everybody struggles with this. Like, what person doesn't struggle with lust? It's not really hurting anybody for me to look at this anyway. What's happening? You're acknowledging there's a problem, but there's a minimization of it. I know I have a short fuse. It's not good. But what do you expect me to do when I have such an incompetent boss? And that's, that's verging on not just minimization, but also blame shifting, which is another way that we deny our sin, a subtle way that we deny it. We place blame, and really what that means is we place ultimate responsibility for our sin on somebody else or something else. We shift blame. It was the wife you gave me, Lord, said Adam. I know I just bit your head off, but I haven't had my coffee yet. So your lack of caffeine is to blame for your sinful speech, not your heart. 
or maybe coffee is the power that gives you the fruit of the Spirit. I wasn't an angry person before I had kids. These kids are just going to make me lose my mind. What's that doing? What, 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 are you, what are we doing there? I mean, I get it, but what are we doing? We're shifting blame. It's the kid's fault, not mine. I just can't stop worrying about my upcoming surgery. Surgeries are scary things. But it's not the surgery's fault that you're worrying. This situation is just stressing me out. The situation is stressing you out? Or are you choosing to respond in fear to that situation? We're saying the situation itself is to blame for my fear, not how I'm choosing to respond to that situation. Speaking of stress, we often deny our sin by relabeling our sin. Something a little less heinous, a little more acceptable. We call sin by a different name. It makes us feel better about it. it. Helps us relieve some of that guilt we feel. Like saying we're stressed instead of admitting we're sinfully afraid. Or saying you struggle with codependency instead of the fear of man and idolizing other people. My point here is just, we're not so far away from Adam and Eve or that four-year-old. We're all tempted towards some form of minimization of sin. We're tempted at one point or another, especially in the areas of our besetting struggle. And it's worth thinking through how you're tempted to deny your sin and how you're tempted to deny your besetting sins in particular. Why? So that you can repent and really find help in these areas. You see, if, if you deny your sin, you won't ultimately experience Christ's cleansing mercy or his divine power to overcome your sin. It starts here. So instead of denying, John tells us what we, we've got to do when we sin, and he says we simply and honestly confess it. We confess our sin. Look again in verse 9, right in the middle of this text. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the solution for John is confession. What's that? Is it just mouthing words? Confession is taking full ownership of your sin before God. Admitting that you're the problem. It's on you. We're convinced of our own sinfulness because we agree with God's assessment of our sin and our culpability. That we're blameworthy. We've got nothing else to boast in. We've got nothing to blame it on. Confession says, I am guilty just like you have said. And all we can do is plead for mercy. So what does this sound like? Well, Scripture gives us lots of examples of this. 
and in the right confessions, you certainly don't hear any of that stuff we just looked at. You don't hear any covering of sin, any blame shifting, any minimization. Here's David when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Here's the tax collector in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's David confessing his adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's confession. And true confession is born out of the conviction that my sin comes from my own heart and nowhere else. you get that? We can say it like this. You will not confess properly until you believe that your sin comes from your own heart and nowhere else. It doesn't come from your circumstances. It doesn't come from other people. It doesn't come from the devil. It comes from your own heart. The circumstance, like the person who was rude to you, let's say, That only squeezed your heart and you chose to respond in anger. And you're responsible for that response. All the circumstance can do, all it can do is reveal what is in your heart. That's Jesus' point in Mark 7. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, from the heart, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from my circumstance? The devil? Where? From within. And they defile a person. What's he saying? He's saying you can't blame your phone for your lust. It's not your phone's fault. It's not YouTube's fault. It's your heart's fault. Where do evil thoughts come from? Where does sexual immorality come from? The heart. That's according to Jesus. Where does the craving come from? The human heart, not the phone. And the true confession, the kind of confession John is talking about here in 1 John 1, this is born out of this very conviction, the conviction that says, sin comes from me, period. It's me, There's no but. There's no excuse. It's me. 
Sin is my fault, period. I can only plead guilty and ask for mercy. But when we do, do you realize what happens? The floodgates of God's mercy open up because he is a God of abounding grace and mercy. He lavishes us with full forgiveness. He longs to shower us, drown us with his mercy. That's what John's getting at in 1 John 9, 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sometimes this trips people up, and they think, maybe you're thinking this right now. Time out. Aren't we already forgiven by the Lord? If we're Christians, why do we need this forgiveness that he's talking about here? Why do we need more forgiveness if we're already forgiven? You can think of it like this. When you first repent of your sin, when the Lord gives you new life, he brings you into his family. Right? You become part of the family. You can't be kicked out again. You come in to the family forgiven once and for all, but once you're in, you can still displease your father. When you do, you're not kicked out of the family. You're still loved and cherished by your father deeply. It hasn't hasn't touched his love for you. He still loves you. But it does affect the relationship. If you keep on going and just hard-headed, displeasing him without acknowledging that that's what's going on. The Lord will bring consequences, and that's a mercy. He's gonna, his heavy hand is going to be upon us. Our bones are going to feel like they're drying up. We're going to feel crushed like, like David did, Psalm 32. Even our prayers will be hindered as Christians if we don't confess. They'll be hindered until we humble ourselves and we own our sin. So this confession as a Christian is a needed act of humility. But also, this confession trusts the Lord in the beauty and the simplicity of his solutions. All he asks you to do is own it. Not make elaborate excuses. Not exhaust yourself trying to figure out why you're doing what you're doing and renaming it, all kinds of things. But just own it. How simple is that? How refreshing is that? It's hard, yeah, because it cuts against the grain of pride in our hearts. But get this, the very act of confession, the very act of taking full ownership of your sin is an act of humility. Confessing your sin is helping you grow. In humility. And that is worth celebrating. I get so excited when I hear somebody talking in these categories. So excited. Because I know that at least half the battle, maybe more, is won. When you lay it all down and you stop making excuses and you own your sin. The Lord is helping to reverse the trend of Adam and Eve 
in this redemption, when you take ownership of your sin, and this is going to have massive implications for the rest of your life. I could just, we could keep going, we could finish here. Um, But let's just take one of those implications. Think about your home. When a father, a mother, are not making excuses about their sin. They're not ignoring their sin and pretending like they never sinned. There's no phony Christianity in the home anymore. Your kids see real, humble parents. They're taught that mom and dad desperately need Jesus too, just like they're telling you that you need Jesus. They're taught how to forgive. And the home becomes a grace-filled place because everybody, mom and dad included, depend on it. Massive implications just from learning to confess our sin. And one more just practical thought here. I often have people write out a prayer of confession when I'm working with them. A prayer of confession, and it admits the ways that they've denied their sin in the past, as well as how they're owning it now. Why do I do that? Because it helps us smoke out all those ways that they're tempted to to squirm out of taking responsibility for their sin. It's not to shame them or... But it's helping them to identify it and run to the right passages, mimic Psalm 51 and other places in their prayer life. So for those of you who are working with other people, that's a really helpful practice. Now, oftentimes, when we, we feel the weight of our sin, we feel its guilt, we're realizing that we can't blame it on anything else, we know that we're responsible for it. We confess it. Sometimes another subtle temptation sneaks in the back door here. And we actually start resting in our confession. We rest in our sort of own offering of atonement, so to speak, before the Lord. The confession becomes some kind of atoning sacrifice in our minds. We're tempted to base our relationship with Christ on something other than what he's done. We try to find some way to pacify God after we've confessed, and we call this self-atonement. And that leads to our our fourth and final way that that the Lord wants us to respond rightly to our sin. He does not want us to self-atone, but he wants us to entrust ourselves completely to Jesus. Don't self-atone, but entrust yourself to Jesus. Your confession, beloved, doesn't merit you anything. All your confession is, is saying, I'm guilty. I need mercy. We can't self-atone, but we, can, we, we must entrust ourselves to Christ alone. So let's, let's nail down this concept of self-atonement. What do I mean by that when we, when we say that? In the scriptures, our sin causes real guilt. There's a real problem when we sin because we really are culpable before God. We really are blameworthy before God. We've done this thing. We've transgressed. And there must be, we feel it intuitively, there must be some type of atonement Something to make this thing right that we've done. 
some punishment for sin to to make things right again. And in our guilt, we know this. And sometimes instead of hoping in Christ, we try to atone for ourselves. We try to cover our own sin like Adam sowing his own fig leaves. So again, if this is a new idea for you, let me just let me just ferret this out a little bit. Let's look at self-atoning and then we'll compare it to Christ's atonement and what he's accomplished for us. What are some ways we try to atone for ourselves? Well, sometimes we think we need more punishment. We need more punishment. I'm such a failure. I'm a wreck. I deserve judgment. I would be better if I'd never even existed. Functionally, we're hoping that if we beat ourselves down enough, that we will relieve the guilt we feel. Or, if we beat ourselves down enough to others, they will see that we feel really bad about what happened. These are attempts to assuage our guilty conscience apart from Christ. You see that? Trying to feel better about ourselves by ourselves. And that all is sort of rooted in this, uh, I need more punishment idea. Even if I'm giving myself the punishment. We look with disdain on on Roman Catholics and so that they whip themselves, but we often do the same things, don't we? Sometimes we think, need more repentance. More repentance. We sin, and and instead of coming to Christ and looking to Him, we we think things like, I'm going to never do this again. Period. I'm I'm never going to do this again. Next time, I'm going to try harder. We immediately jump to solutions to try to fix ourselves so that we feel better about ourselves. And functionally, we're hoping that that we're going to be more repentant, that we're going to have more effort next time. And that's what we're hoping in rather than hoping in Christ. So we're going to see it's good that we put effort toward toward beating sin. But we can't be hoping in that to assuage our conscience. Or we might think, I need more time. I can't go to God now after I've sinned. God needs more time. I'm sure he's upset with me. I need to let him cool down a little bit. In a few days, once I've not committed this sin anymore, then I'll go to him. I'll start praying again, and he'll see that I really mean it this time. You ever thought that? What is that? That's a form of self-atonement. And it's important to see that this response is rooted in pride. Because we're saying something like this. We're saying, I was perfect before this, but now I see I've got a problem, so I've got to go quick fix it so I can get back to being perfect. But instead, we've got to realize we were never good. And what God has exposed in our hearts isn't even the half of it. We desperately need 
his atonement. We cannot atone for ourselves at all. Only he can provide what we need. Period. We do want to address the sin, but we don't want to address it apart from trusting in what he has promised. Make sense? So instead of trying to atone for ourselves, we need to look to Christ in faith. We need to renew our minds and everything he has provided for us, everything he has earned for us. He is our atonement. He's our perfect atonement, even for our besetting sins. And this is exactly where John goes in our text in 1 John chapter 2. Look with me. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you see where John goes? I don't want you to sin, but if you sin, what's he saying? Look to Christ. Look to him. Look to all Christ is for you. And he gives us some things to sink our teeth into. He says, Christ is our advocate. He's our advocate, he says. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is a friend that's high up. A friend that can represent you in court. And in this case, it is the most important court known to man. It's God's own courtroom, his heavenly throne room. Christ, as your powerful and influential friend, is advocating on your behalf to the Father. But how? What's going on? He's pointing to himself. Notice that Christ is also our righteousness. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the righteous one. Christ is, not you. And this verse implies that his very righteousness is credited to you. And he's advocating for you on that basis. His righteousness wraps around you like a warm coat in the winter. And as he advocates on your behalf, he points to his own righteousness that he earned for you and he gave to you freely. And not only does he advocate with his righteousness, but he advocates on the basis of his death, too. He says he is our propitiation. Our propitiation. This is an incredible word. It means that Christ is the atoning sacrifice. He's the wrath absorber. God's wrath was coming at us, and there was nothing we could do until our Lord stepped in front. Until our Lord absorbed the tidal wave of wrath, absorbing it to the full. If we change the metaphor, he drank the cup of God's wrath to the final drop, and he left only blessing behind for you to experience. Because of Christ's death, 
If you confess your sin and entrust yourself to Him, you will never, ever experience any drip of God's wrath, ever. No judgment. And that is a glorious thought. So John gives us this here because he wants us to appropriate this into our lives, to relate to God on this basis, on the basis of Christ. So as you confess your sin, don't just confess and then kind of get up from your knees with these nagging doubts about God's love for you. Don't get up with nagging doubts about whether or not you'll have to pay for that particular sin or whether God's going to judge you for it or not. Appropriate the death of Christ. Appropriate all He's accomplished. His righteousness. His advocating for you. And get up from your prayer. Get up living in the joy of all that God has done for you in Christ. You have an advocate. Now live like you have one. And one, again, practical thing here that I encourage people to do is not only write out a prayer of confession where you're owning your sin and taking full ownership of it, but also write a prayer of thanksgiving. Write a prayer of thanksgiving based on texts like this where you can articulate Thanks to God for Christ, for how he has absorbed your wrath for the besetting sin that you have been involved in. So, as we wrap up tonight, just step back and ask yourself, when you sin, how do you respond? How do you respond? When you sin today, this afternoon after lunch, when somebody crossed your will, and you sin, and you're aware of it, you feel the guilt, how do you respond? Because you've got two choices. You're either going to respond biblically with Christ's solutions, or you're going to respond like Adam and Eve in deception. But here is the encouragement. Learning to respond rightly is at least half the battle in our growth to maturity. When we have hope and we're not falling into the pit of despair, when we're not isolating, we're seeking help, whenever we are, are taking ownership of our sin and confession and we're, and we're trusting in the atonement of Christ for our own sin, that's the foundation for all transformation. We are thoroughly humbled by this. And the humility is the soil that Christ's likeness grows in. Learning to respond biblically to your sin is the first step toward maturity. And that means if you're involved in counseling or discipling, these kinds of things need to be the benchmarks for those, of the, those people that you're restoring, those people that you're working with. Aim at these things initially. And your disciple will be well on their way toward maturity. It takes time. But as you teach them to confess their sin 
As you teach them to repent of their excuses, to cling to Christ alone, you're clarifying the gospel, you're teaching them how to get out of the bear trap, you're strengthening faith, and you're ultimately teaching them how to get loose if they get caught again by the bear trap. And pretty soon, they're going to know how to free themselves. Now, we're going to see next time, just just because the foot is out of that trap, if we kind of keep the analogy going, that doesn't mean that we're completely out of the woods, we might say. In fact, we're, we're still in the woods, even though we're out of the trap, and the woods are full of more traps, right? So now we've got to learn to navigate out of the woods to see the traps in the distance, to avoid those traps altogether so we can get back out of the woods and back on the path to fruitful living and discipleship, being useful to others. And we're going to talk about all that in the weeks to come. But for now, ask yourself as you're walking away, how do I respond when I sin? Respond like Christ would have you respond. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what sweet refreshment it is to come before you humbled and taking full responsibility for our sin. And yet, how difficult that is for a proud heart to do that. We admit now that we would never do that if it weren't for your grace. Thank you for humbling us, helping us see our sin, calling it what it actually is. And thank you so much for Christ and for the abundant mercy that he's poured out on us. And I pray that tonight, if there's anybody here who is in isolation, they feel discouraged and trapped, that you would set them free. Connect them with a person who can restore them and help them out of this path they're on. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.